Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on September 9, 2012. Today's message is Becoming Mature by Pastor Ryan Cochran based on James chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. Let's pray together. Lord, we are your disciples. We want to learn from you. And so we come together to hear your word today. Lord, may you speak to us by your spirit. Amen. May the Lord be with you. Over the past uh, few weeks, I've been telling people that uh, I'm beginning a sermon series on the book of James, and I've heard people over and over again kind of exclaim, oh, I love James, or James is such a great book. And to be honest, I've been a little bit surprised at how quickly people have expressed their, their admiration for this letter. Uh, James is filled with very practical, earthy everyday instructions about how to follow Jesus. The book of James is very plain and straightforward. In James, we don't find really any deep theological arguments like we do in Paul's letters. In James, we don't find any mysterious parables that just kind of leave us perplexed. Uh, James's letter is clear and to the point. The illustrations and the imagery that he uses in his letter lead us to action rather than to deep contemplation. So on one hand, I I do understand why people have expressed so much affection and appreciation for this letter. It is filled with instructions about the stuff of our everyday life. Commands to control our tongue. Instructions about how to get along with one another. Warnings about how we use our money. Encouragement for us when we're going through trials. This is the stuff of our everyday life. So because of that, I can understand why people love this letter so much. But at the same time, I find myself a little surprised and maybe even confused at people's affection for this book. Maybe it's just me, but because this letter is so plain, because it is so direct and to the point, I find myself pretty uncomfortable when I read it. There's no getting around what James says to us. There's no way trying to pretend that James maybe doesn't mean exactly what he says that he means, and really he means this. James is clear and to the point. His letter is a call to action. It is a call to convert, a convert from one way of life to another, a call to not only be hearers of God's word, but doers as well. And James is very clear in his letter that God's harsh judgment is in store for those who are not doers of God's word. Because James is so plain and to the point and speaks so directly to me in my personal life, I read the letter and realize that if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, then I must change. 
My perspective on my trials and my sufferings must change. The way that I use my words must change. The ways that I use my time and my money must change. In so many areas of my life, I must not be a person who only hears God's word, but who does it as well. And if I do not do it, if I do not do it, then the message of James is that my faith is no faith at all. James is so bold to even call into question our salvation if actions, if good deeds do not accompany this faith that most of us in here profess with our mouths. So I, too, love the book of James. It is a wonderful book that speaks plainly to us about our daily walk with Christ. I'm looking forward to preaching it over the next few months. But if I'm honest, I also dislike this book. It is much too real for me, much too convicting. My flesh, the part of me that has not yet come to Christian maturity, bristles at what this book says to me. And if I take it seriously, if we are going to take this book seriously, we're going to realize that too much of our lives are conformed to the goals and the aspirations of the culture around us and not conformed to the goals and aspirations of the gospel and the kingdom of God. This morning, I want to give us an introduction to this book. And I want to ask three questions of this book. Who is James? What is this letter, and why was this letter written? I want to talk about the who and the what and the why of James. Let's begin with the who. Who was James? Well, he opens his letter with these words, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we looked at Jude's letter uh, last month, we saw that Jude and James were both brothers of Jesus himself, two men who grew up in the same house with Jesus, uh, sons of, of Mary and Joseph. And after the resurrection, we know that Jude and James became leaders in the church. But Jude and James and the rest of Jesus's family did not always believe who Jesus was or said that he was. Throughout Jesus' ministry, Jude and James and the rest of Jesus' immediate family tried to stop Jesus in his ministry. Mark's gospel says that Jesus' family thought that he had lost his mind and that he was going to get himself killed. Of course, they were right about the second part, but they were not right about the first part. Jesus was in his right mind. James, like his brother Jude, at some point had to go through a conversion. Sometime after the resurrection, James James came to see that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Lord of all things. And so because of that conversion that he went through, James wants to be known as servant of Jesus Christ. Like his brother Jude, James gives himself the title servant of Jesus Christ. It certainly would have no doubt been tempting to say, I am James, a brother of Jesus. You should listen to me. There's no one who knows Jesus better than I do. I grew up with him, after all. So you should listen to me. But that's not what James does. James' authority comes from his submission to Jesus, his faithfulness to Jesus, not because he is a part of Jesus' immediate family. 
And we know in the New Testament, when we hear about the stories of James, that James was faithful to his Lord, Jesus Christ. James was a giant in the early church. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We see this especially in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, there is a, uh, the first major council of the church. Uh, the leaders of the church got together because there was a particular problem going on, and they had to decide uh, what the solution to this problem would be. The question for this council was whether or not a Gentile needed to become a Jew in order to be a follower of Jesus. And throughout this council, many different people stood up, many different leaders in the church stood up and spoke about their opinion on this matter. But the one who has the very last word in Acts chapter 15 is James. After James speaks, the issue is settled. We see in Paul's life that after Paul was called by God to be an apostle, uh, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and you know who he reports to? He reports to James. James was a key leader in the early church, perhaps even seen as the leader of the early church. James, a brother of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, one of the strongest leaders in the early church, is the one who writes this letter. That is the who of this letter. What is this letter? James's letter is a much different letter than the other letters that we read in the New Testament. His letter does not uh, seek to make a deep theological argument like in Paul's letters. Instead, the book of James is written as a series of instructions about what it means to live faithfully to Jesus Christ. The letter is written almost in in bullet point style with very brief instructions uh, about various topics about faithful living. The book of James is kind of like the New Testament version of the Old Testament book of Proverbs a series of brief instructions about how to practically live out our faith. And throughout the letter, there is this call over and over again that we must practically live out our faith. If we say that we believe in Jesus, we must show it. You say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that you are his servant. Great, says James. What does that look like in your life? Does the way that you speak show that you're a follower of Jesus? Does the way that you spend your money show and display that you're a follower of Jesus? Does the way that you respond to the poor show that you are a follower of Jesus? The letter of James is a call to action. If we're going to be a follower of Christ, then we should expect that our lives would look different than the lives of those who are not followers of Christ. As we read James's letter, we very quickly realize that James lived in an upside-down world. Being a follower of Jesus and living out a life as a follower of Jesus invites us to live in this world in a way much different than people around us. Uh, just let me give you an example uh, from James's letter. In James chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 11, listen to how James describes the poor and the rich. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. James says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. 
For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away, even while he goes about his business. James describes the the person in humble circumstances, that is the poor person, as a person of high position. And the person who is rich as a person in a low position. For James, this is simply assumed to be true. James really believes Jesus when he said, Blessed are the poor. For James, the Beatitudes of Jesus aren't riddles for us to figure out. James simply assumes that what Jesus says is true. Blessed are the poor. Those who are poor are in a high position. So those of you who are poor, take pride in your high position. Blessed are you who are poor. Take pride in your high position. And those of you who are rich, don't worry, it's okay. Jesus, uh, James here even speaks words of comfort to the rich. It's okay if you're rich. Uh, God gives each of us a burden to bear. Take pride in your low position as a rich person. Take pride in the fact that you won't have to be rich for very long because your life is like a wildflower. It will soon be over. It's passing away. You won't have to endure this low position for very long. Take pride in the fact that your life is like a flower and that your wealth is meaningless. Take pride in your low position, those of you who are rich. If you're poor, you're blessed. Be happy in your high position. If you're rich, it's okay. Take pride in your low position as well. I'm being a little bit sarcastic. but The thing is, James isn't being sarcastic at all. That's really the way that he sees the world. James is not being sarcastic or ironic. This is the way that he sees the world because it's the way that Jesus saw the world. And James is trying to help us to see the world in the way that Jesus saw it. Trying to help us see the world through the lens of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the poor are blessed. They are in a high position. Those who mourn are comforted. Over and over in this letter, James invites us to see the world in this upside-down way, or, or maybe better, James invites us to see the world right side up. Our world is upside down. Our world is a world where the rich and the powerful and the ones who can use their tongues to manipulate the most people are the ones who are seen as successful. James has a different idea of success. Success for Jesus and for James is much different. Success is obedience to Jesus' upside-down or right-side-up kingdom. James 2, verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? This is the what of James's letter. It's a series of instructions, practical instructions about our real, everyday life that invite us to see the world through the right-side-up way of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to act in obedience to the values of that kingdom. That is the what of this letter. And now for the why. To answer the why, I want us to look at verse 2. James writes, Consider it pure joys, my brothers, 
whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James, right off the bat, begins his letter by talking about trials, about pain and difficulty in life, and gives us the kingdom perspective on our suffering and our trials. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now, when James says to consider, uh, he isn't suggesting that we think about it for a little bit, that we kind of mull it over in our heads and think, hmm, Consider it pure joy. That's an interesting idea. Are my trials pure joy? I don't know. I'll think about that for a while. It's not what he means by the word consider. By consider, he means believe. It is definitive. It is final. Consider it. Know that it is pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Realize with all of your hearts that it is pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, consider is final. It is pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. This is an upside-down way to view our trials, is it not? To consider them pure joy. And then James says, whenever. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not if you face trials of many kinds. Not maybe if you happen to come across some trials every once in a while, but whenever you do. In other words, you will face trials. Not if, but whenever trials come your way. The Christian faith promises trials and sufferings in life. If you are going through a trial in your life right now, it is not because you are doing the Christian thing the wrong way. It's not because you did something to make God angry with you. It's not because you somehow didn't pray the right way or ask God in the right way or to use the right formula in your prayer life or in your worship life in order to make God happy with you. That is not the reason for your trial. We are promised trials. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. But how? How can we possibly consider it pure joy when we face trials? James says it's because the trials are doing something good in us. God is in them. God is at work in them. Jesus is telling, uh, James is telling us that we are called to look through the trials to the work that those trials are doing in us. And notice that James is not telling us, look through these trials um, into eternity, because one day you're going to be in heaven someday, and so right now these trials really don't matter. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is that the trials are doing something in your life right now. In this life, the trials have a purpose. They are strengthening us. They are developing patience and perseverance in us so that we can be obedient to Christ. Trials and sufferings bring about new things in us. Now, many of you, uh, especially those of you who right now are going through a trial, may be thinking, that sounds really good in theory. Pastor Ryan, consider it pure joy 
when you face trials of many kinds, because these joys are producing perseverance and maturity in you. That sounds great in theory. But Ryan, this trial really hurts. It's really painful. Some of you in this room are presently going through terrible pain and suffering. Some of it physical, some of it mental. Some of you may be struggling with depression or anxiety in your life. Others of you have suffered great loss. Some of you may be physically in pain or enduring suffering. And so James 1 and 2 sounds great in theory. Consider it pure joy because this trial is producing something good in me. That sounds good in theory. I understand. In many ways, I agree when I read verses 2 through 4. What I want to say to you, and I want to give you a very clear example of why James 1, verses 2 through 4, is not just theory, and why you in your own life can know that it is not just a theory, but that it is the truth. A few years ago, um, there was about 20 people in our church over the course of three or four years who went through a program called the Leadership Center. And as a practice, as a, uh, something that we were all called to do in the Leadership Center is that we were to create a timeline of our life, from the very beginning of our life into the present, uh, to write different events, significant events, uh, people that were in our life, uh, really hard events, really good events, times of praise, uh, times of disappointment. We are to write all of those out on post-it notes, kind of like what we're doing here as a church. And on yellow post-it notes, we were to write good things that happened to us or neutral things that happened, just uh, things that happened along the way that were significant in some way. And then on pink post-it notes, we were to put difficulties or trials that came into our life. We were to put this on a big piece of poster board uh, from the beginning to the end of our life. And then what we were asked to do was to divide our life into chapters, five or six different chapters of our life, uh, to, to, to mark different places. And we were to give each of those chapters a name. And what happened almost inevitably, about 90% of the time, a pink post-it note, a trial or a suffering was the event that marked the movement from one chapter into another. It was a trial or a time of suffering in people's life when they were moved, when we are moved from one place to another. And I would suggest to you, if you considered your own life, if you sought to write a story of your life and broke that life up into chapters, that it would be times of trial, times of loss, times of suffering when you would be moved from one chapter in your life to another. This is the way that God works in our life. He uses painful trials and sufferings in order to turn the page in our life, to move us from one place to another. This is the way that God works. And so this is where we come to the why of James. The why of this letter is to tell us and to show us that God is at work in our life to bring us to maturity and to completion. That's what verse says. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Now, I really hate when pastors say the Hebrew means this or the Aramaic means this. It really annoys me. 
But the Greek word, you really had to be here last week to, for that joke to be funny. Um, the Greek word translated here as completion is the word telos. Telos is the Greek idea of perfection. Not moral perfection necessarily, although that is part of it. Not sinlessness necessarily, although that's part of it. The Greek idea of perfection, of telos, was the idea of a thing functioning as it should function. So let me give you an example. The telos, the goal, the end, the perfection of a bicycle is to move a person from point A to point B. A bicycle is made for that purpose. That is when a bicycle is fulfilling its telos, when it's moving somebody from one place to another. Now, you can do other things with a bicycle, right? Uh, Maybe you have some wet laundry that needs drying. Uh, You can put the wet laundry over the bike and hang that shirt over the bike, and that bike will serve as a good drying rack, right? But it's not functioning according to its telos, according to its goal. According to James, we as human beings have a telos, a perfection, a way that we act according to the way that we were created to act. And according to James, we are being moved to this telos. We can make our lives about other things. We can make the end goals, the telos of our life about other things, but it won't be our true telos, our true maturity and completion. And what James says is that suffering is one of the ways that we are led to maturity and completion. Suffering is what God uses to move us away from valuing what is in this upside-down world toward obedience to Christ. James recognizes that this movement and the many instructions that he's going to give us about how we live according to our telos in many ways in our life, he knows that this is not easy. And so he, in verse 5, turns our attention to God who gives wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding faults, and it will be given to him. Now, I don't know about you, but often when I'm going through a trial or when I need direction or when I need wisdom, I just Google it. And you know, Google will sometimes answer my questions. Google may sometimes solve my immediate problem. But James, in the Spirit of God within you, is after something much deeper in you than simply information that's able to solve your immediate problems. James is calling you and I to be people of wisdom. And in the Bible, wisdom is not just about having a lot of knowledge and information. Wisdom is about being the kind of person who is able to do the right thing at the right time. We are being called to be a people of wisdom. A people who at the right time, in the right place, are able to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. A people who are able to look at the money and resources and time that we have and are able to do the right thing at the right time. 
a people who are to take this tongue of ours, which James calls a fire that destroys lives. James says people of wisdom are able to use it to build up and to glorify God. To be a people who are able to do the right thing at the right time, that requires wisdom. And for wisdom, we must ask God. Google cannot help us be that kind of people. Only God can make us wise. If any of you needs wisdom, if any of you needs to be able to do the right thing at the right time, if any of you right now needs to be able to consider it pure joy because you are going through a trial, ask God, and he will give you wisdom. Maybe right now you are going through a time in your life where you have to make a significant decision in your life. Use Google. Get the information that you need, but you better ask God so that you can do the right thing at the right time. Maybe you are a person in your life who finds that your tongue is often harming others, uh, harming yourself, harming the community around you. You need to be a person of wisdom, and you need to ask God for it. If any of you needs wisdom, ask God. He is the only one who is able to make us a people of wisdom, a people who are able to do the right thing at the right time. James, it's a letter written by one of Jesus' own brothers, a man who in his own life was converted to Jesus as Lord and a man who is one of the key leaders of the church. That's the who. It is a very practical letter, a letter filled with everyday advice about how to live in obedience to Jesus. It's a letter that is given to us in order that we may know how to be mature and complete and to act as we should, to act according to our telos, act according to the reason we were created. I'm glad that many of you are excited to study this book with me, but I also want you to be prepared to hear some hard words about your life. In James's own words, it will be no good for you to hear the words coming from this letter, to hear the words that God in his grace leads me to speak. It will be no good for you to hear them and do nothing at all. So are you willing during this time in your life, during this season in your walk with Christ, wherever you are, to ask God for wisdom, to ask God to show you where in your life you need to be converted, to change, to act differently than you did before, to act more consistently with your telos, with the reason that you are created. If you're not willing to do that, uh, then you're not going to like James much at all. But if you are open, if you are willing to not only hear, but also to do, to act, then this could be a life-changing moment for you and for our church. So let us pray and ask God for wisdom as we hear. God in heaven, we ask that you would make us not only hearers of your word, but doers. We ask by the help of your Spirit, that we would know and be able to see how to embody our faith, to put actions to our faith. Lord, we ask you for wisdom. 
Lord, we know that all wisdom comes from you. So we ask you for it. We ask you to make us the kind of people who are able to do the right thing at the right time. Lord, I pray for each one of us in the areas of our life that are going to read the book of James or to read any of the scriptures and to uh, to resist your word for us. Lord, I pray for the conviction of your spirit and ask that you would change us. Lord, I pray that by the end of this sermon series that we would all love the book of James. Not only because it's uh, great advice for us that we can hear, but that we will see that you've led us to take real action in our life. That you've changed us as we've encountered this word. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Lord. Amen.